This is 16 to 1, a podcast about education, teaching, and learning. good i'm okay how are you i'm good good I'm fine i'm well yeah you're doing well we've had a lot of snow days here we have it's been dumping inches and inches of snow and now ice here in the midwest it's been um basically almost a constant for a week i would say yeah it's been like, like every other couple two days of weeks, yeah. actually it's been pretty strange yeah i guess otherwise. you're right i mean i like it because i love snow mm-hmm. but the world does come to a grinding halt well you don't have a commute I have no commute. So that my helps. My commute is from the bedroom to my office. And the snow never impacts down that the hall. for you. Well, no, no. It really you don't doesn't. have to, like, start your car. I do not. You don't have to pack a lunch. I haven't even bothered to clear off my car from all the snow. I really probably should, just to be nice We just my made car. the decision to bury it in. Yeah, it's like, there was too much snow to push around, so we just were like, you know what? That was it like just two weeks ago. It lives there now. Yeah, yeah that was the first big snow. Now it's only gotten more. And we're supposed to get more you know yeah my car by the time this episode comes out we'll probably have like six more inches right i might never drive my car again is (laughs) what the deal is there but i mean you know what can you do it's also been extremely extremely cold so my motivation to go shovel out my car for my zero mile commute has been very low well we don't go anywhere yeah we also have no life because covid so we have no yeah there's very little motivation well and maybe that's exactly what we need to not go do anything we can't get one car out you know it's so there's really there's really just no point it's just keeping us safer at this point our laziness is rewarding us yeah so anyway i'm enjoying the snow you're enjoying the snow our dog was enjoying the snow (laughs) but does not like the ice Mm -mm. it shifted she can't figure out how to walk on it it's pretty she's too heavy to walk on top without Mm -hmm. falling through Mm mm-hmm and just too heavy for the rest of it is essentially what's happening mm-hmm. so now her legs get stuck places and she's not very tall yeah she pokes little holes when she walks on it and then she just looks at you like are you going to she's come like, get why me? did you do that to me mm-hmm. I, I we, we didn't i promise and if we get all 95 pounds of her out of that hole you know it's really an achievement yeah yeah it takes a lot of coaxing yes but we're just, treats we had encouragement to take out finally um what was the thing you took out in the yard? You started a... Oh, a pitchfork. A pitchfork. Yeah, I had to use a breaking pitchfork. up the ice. So I used a pitchfork to break up the ice on the sidewalks, too. It was so thick that our shovels were just skidding off of the top of it when we tried to shovel. Well, we got, like, more ice than they said we were going to. Yeah. And then it snowed on top. Yeah. So we had, like, a layer of ice. So we were pushing the snow off of the ice, but then we couldn't do it. The snow wasn't even, like, an inch, I don't think, but it was just enough to make it even more of a hassle. So then I had to stab the ice. Anyways. So the dog's fine, mostly. Yeah. We're fine. The dog is surviving. Do I want to talk about my vaccine? Can I say that? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Are you excited? I got it. You got your first round. Round one. Right? It went really well. That's great. Yeah, the schools you didn't and seem to explode with any adverse reactions. No, so. the schools in Ohio were put on like a four week, like cycle sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So my area was of the week two is when we could start. So we actually our district set it up and had a local health group come in and do it. It went really well. Good, great. You know, cycle as far as how they made it work. Mm-hmm. Very quick, very painless. Didn't hurt at all. Yeah, that's nice. But I get flu shots, and I've had allergy shots my whole life, so I'm pretty, you know, 
you're a lot more sensitive to vaccines than I am. Yes. Um, but it, it went really well. The only thing that I noticed was that I was tired, but I don't even know if it's from that. Yeah. It could know? have been from just <laughs> it was existing. Just it was a Friday right. and I was tired. So. And you're alive in 2021. Yep. <laughs> and I've been teaching all year. So I feel QED. very fortunate. Yes. Uh, very lucky. Very thankful. So I did that. And I'll follow up with vaccine number two in a future episode, which I know <laughs> will likely have more, you know. That one you might be a little more uncomfortable. Probably be a little bit more uncomfortable, yeah. but it's still going to be so much easier in my head to yes. be like, yes, it's working. So very pro-science, very excited for science. Feels good. <laughs> good. We want to normalize this conversation, you know, like we want this to be <laughs> important to yeah. people. So yeah, it's a good thing. Well, you chose a topic this week. I did. Yeah, we had a an interesting co- conversation a couple of weeks ago, and I wanted to revisit it because we mm-hmm. were talking about you do some work at your school on various committees reviewing mm-hmm. some educational data. So we're talking about data this week mm-hmm. and like all kinds of different types of educational data, how it's acquired, what its uses are, how some of it is probably overemphasized yeah. especially in the realm of standardized testing maybe mm-hmm. maybe not who knows but yeah we're talking about all things educational data or it's just gonna be pretty high level we're probably gonna do an entire episode dedicated to standardized testing at some point so well, it's that, very hard to separate those two yeah right well right because when people say educational data they commonly mean standardized testing right these days but well, there's because a- that's the data that is what Right, is used to well, that's what everyone us. is all worried about all the time because that's right because your job depends on it mm-hmm. um, if you're a teacher. So that's often what people exclusively talk about when they talk about educational data. But we're going to talk about some other kinds of data too, mm-hmm. um, and just in general, you know, how you go about getting it, how you go about processing it, how sure. it impacts the day to day in student and teacher life. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, so. Just in general, kind of like what what all what all counts as educational data here? What are and and all also of sort of what are expectations <laughs> that we have of educators when it comes to using data to inform classroom practices? So as far as like data that isn't right standardized testing, okay, that looks like a lot of things. Uh-huh. It can be formative assessments in your classrooms. What what are those? which could be a million things? A formative assessment could be something like put your thumbs up if you understand put your thumbs down if you you know what i mean like that type of thing so stuff that is you're gathering information from students but it's not impacting their grade or something like that and some form of assessments could be a grade not normally would i say Mm -hmm. that um Mm -hmm. it just depends on the teacher because we all use them differently but like formative assessments really can be like an exit ticket they can be things like that that just help the teacher kind of gauge. i don't know what that is what does that mean an exit ticket might be something like this is jargon it's just sorry no it's okay but it's like sometimes they're called like three two one tickets for some people so it's like three things you learn two things you're still confused about one question you have so you might spend like the last three minutes of class having a student fill out a little note card and they turn and then when they leave i would be so annoyed if i had to do that but i mean i get that it's supposed to reinforce Mm -hmm. learning I get it, but personally, I would be very annoyed Most by formative that. assessments are used for the teachers just to gauge like, right. where we are. Right, 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 right. So there isn't, like, one of them. There's oh, yeah. millions of them. My annoyance with that kind of thing is not because it's not a good idea. It probably is a good idea, but I personally would just be annoyed. But that's just because of who I am. Sure. I'd be like, why am I And some students are thing? like, ugh. 
You yes, know. I would have been like that. I been like, but Ugh. I will say some of those things, like an exit ticket, are good because they let kids ask questions who might not have the confidence to ask questions. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we have to look at them that way as well. Because you and I would have been students who would just raise our hands and done the thing. Uh huh. Not all of mine are. Right. So it can be formative assessments. And then I also included that schools are required to keep some pretty absurd data for reporting purposes. And so a lot of that data doesn't really have that much, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like I'm going to them being like, what is this number? Because it, it will impact my right, classroom. Right, right, right. It is because we have to report for all of these things. Yeah. I out I outlined the next couple of items mm -hmm. or things that I added here because all this data that you're talking about, they're just all kinds of numbers. We'll talk later about why some of this stuff is required. A lot of it has to do with mm -hmm. the child left behind and sometimes like Obama era common core stuff, like sure. blah, 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 blah. We've talked about that before, but mm -hmm. so a lot of the data that is collected these days has to do with required reporting from some of these laws. And again, we're focusing right. on the United States because that's just what we know, but I'm sure there are, you know, mm -hmm. there are analogous data right. collection requirements and other you know, peer countries. But so if you just think they're just all kinds of numbers and a lot of it is tied to educational funding and we will mm -hmm. also dive deeper into that, but we've got enrollment numbers, demographic data. We and that includes like open enroll students. Yeah. Who is what type, like if our students have been sent out to live in a home, like all of those types of things, like yep. all of those get numbered essentially. Yep. Whether they're public, private, mm -hmm. charter, schools that they're attending just you know the number of students attending charter schools in this country is is like rapidly increased recently yeah. too it's like i think it was like something about like maybe like 0.4 percent or something where when it, i was looking at just some mm. numbers of like in the early 2000s it was something like that now it's up to like six or something mm -hmm. kind of insane like that so you know the number of students sure. attending different kinds of schools graduation rates from those schools that's a big one yeah yeah well that's something that's also in ohio used on our school report card yeah so that's a number we always know yep we talk about oh one that i found was pretty interesting and relevant right now is um home internet mm, access we just did this last week yeah percentage <laughs> of students that have home internet access have really good home internet and access that though home internet is one that the state just required us to start reporting mm -hmm. that wasn't required to be reported before it's pretty wild so, to me that that hasn't become a thing until now when it's like absolutely necessary yeah. because even prior to now there was a ton of stuff that was starting to shift to being mm -hmm. online like you know, you have to turn in your essays through an anti-cheat program or something. Sure. In order to do that, you have to do it online. Turnin.com, so like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you need to, you know, all kinds of stuff that have moved students and teachers yeah. online. So it's a little it's a little disconcerting to me that home internet access rates have only recently become of interest mm -hmm. to to schools. But yeah. You have some other notes here about stuff like Students yeah, on. so like we have to have like in a normal year we would know exactly our free or reduced lunch number, and I say that because our portion of Ohio can be the free and reduced lunch program. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that number is usually lower than what it should be, anyways, because not everyone fills out the paperwork to receive free and reduced lunches just because of even if they would qualify yeah. for it, they don't. But mm -hmm. this year, every single student for the whole year is receiving free breakfast and lunch. Hmm. as part of a covid relief and so this year especially those numbers are nowhere near where they should be but also because why would the parents fill out the form 
if they know their kid's going to get free lunch. lunch Interesting. Uh So that's one. We have like a list of military families. We have a list of those that are considered homeless or those that are in foster care. So then we would also have data for those that are um, IEPs. Individual educational programs? Yep. And 504. So anyone who's been identified with... Um, something like that. So that yeah, could be like mental, a, mental, physical disability, like whatever else. Yeah, like dyslexia and mm-hmm. all kinds, like attention issues, anything like that. So like that data is, I mean, if you're a special ed teacher or something like that, that's going to be kind of your bread and butter. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As far as knowing accommodations and things like that. For classroom teachers, and I say classroom teacher isn't like I'm a core subject classroom teacher. Um, we deal with those differently based on what we teach and who our students are. Mm-hmm. So there are some years where we do have larger caseloads than others. And so it just comes and goes. So I, I can't say that for every teacher, those are a huge part of the data assessment, but for many it is. Mm-hmm. And then also we have like expenditure data. Yeah. I put a note in here about this cause I just thought it was pretty interesting. This is so important. Yeah. Gosh. So expenditure data is like per pupil, per student dollar amount mm-hmm. spent uh, for an academic year, basically. I have some report here that I couldn't get, you can't get these things super up to date, but I was just looking at like 2016, 2017 numbers. Public school spent $12,794 per student on average. So like current to this study, expenditures per pupil were 20% higher in 2016, 2017. So that was, you know, a few years ago, those numbers were 20% higher than in 2000, 2001 after adjusting for inflation, which Mm -hmm. I thought was really interesting. So you would think that investing more dollars per student would increase performance on certain measures of educational like achievement and you know blah blah blah, but it doesn't track it doesn't it Mm -mm. doesn't one-to-one like that Mm -mm. so we'll talk about why it doesn't yeah we'll talk about why but i just thought that was pretty interesting that Mm -hmm. you know spending per student at least from 2000 to 2017 has increased 20 percent, but educational achievement has definitely not increased with the number of dollars spent which is not by the way to say that we're spending enough money on our education system because we do not pay teachers competitively at all Mm -hmm. so even though there's been that increase it's not Mm -mm. it's just not good but anyway let's move on to standardized testing we can talk about all kinds of numbers (laughs) yeah more um so I, i just at the top of this i had a note that i wanted to kind of revisit no Child Left Behind. We've had conversations about this before. We still haven't gotten around to doing our full episode on it because it's just so daunting to imagine. We just should. kind of too daunting. We should stop talking about I it. I know. It keeps coming up in the Every show Every time notes. we talk about it, we're like, oh, we'll do it. Yeah, no, it's just No Child Left Behind is such a big piece of the educational programming of this country that it really will require a lot of research when we finally maybe do two parts it. yeah maybe a two-part episode on nclb but or maybe we'll do one part and never do the second <laughs> because we got tired of it <laughs> yeah could be so a lot of jargon that we now use when we talk about educational data in this country comes from stuff that is contained in the legislation generally known as No Child Left Behind. A big one is called, the piece of jargon is called Adequate Yearly Progress. Mm-hmm. So that's described, and I have the links to where all this stuff is located in the show notes, but this is described as the yardstick at the heart of No Child Left Behind. Under NCLB law, states must test students in math and reading in grades three through eight and at least once in high school. Mm-hmm. So these are standardized tests that we mm-hmm. all talk about. Schools must report on the performance of different groups of students, such as racial minorities, as well as student population as a mm-hmm. whole. Students are expected to reach annual achievement targets known as adequate yearly progress or AYP. Mm-hmm. 
So that this is how the whole world of standardized testing is currently enacted in this country, at least. You have to make a certain amount of progress per year. Mm -hmm. So under NCLB, schools that fail to make adequate yearly progress and meet their achievement targets for two years in a row have to allow their students to transfer to better performing schools in, in the district, which... I just, anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated. Within the district? So, like, from an elementary to a different elementary? Must well, be. this is hard for us to envision because we come from very small districts yeah, with, like, say, one elementary is, school. Yeah. I mean, there are three elementary schools in our district. Yeah. But, um... I grew up in one of In two. your district. Actually, now it has say. one. Yeah. So, there are three... Uh, I should say there were three when I was growing up in my district. Interesting. Yeah. I know that that's the case for students who have IEPs, for sure. Mm-hmm. If you can't offer them the services, then you have to. That's fascinating. Yeah, I don't think I, I knew mean, that. There, uh, I actually talk about that a little bit later. It's oh, like, sorry, no, no, no. It's okay. It's just that I, I mean, in general, all of this has massive funding implications. Yeah. you can understand super when expensive. Your funding comes from, in part, the number of students enrolled in your district, and you lose students because of performance issues. That's um, a problem. Because the law mandates that they you're allowed to lose them. There are just all kinds of problems. So anyway, mm-hmm. all of this has to do with funding kind of at the core, unfortunately, in my mind. So anyway, back to this NCLB stuff. These schools, if you don't meet your AOIP targets, uh, you become one of two kinds of schools. There's a focus school, and this is a term that came out of the Obama admins NCLB waivers. Common Core was an Obama admin thing too, but they also were attaching modifications to No Child Left Behind. And one of the things that they did was create these these focus schools, and that's schools with a stubborn achievement gaps <laughs> or weak performance. That's a great, yeah, there we go. There's the word I yeah. was waiting for. <laughs> a weak performance among subgroup students. So subgroups are English language learners mm-hmm. or students in special ed or other just different identified smaller groups of students within the general student body. States must identify 10% of their schools as focus schools. No matter what. No matter what, states are forced to basically mm-hmm. stigmatize 10% of schools no matter what. With this thing. With this thing. It's very so, hard. It's a it's a hole that once you've dug. I yep. Mean, yeah. Yep. And then a sort of more intense level is a priority school. So that was a focus school. This is a priority Mm -hmm. school. This is a term that also came from the Obama administration's NCLB goofing around with that law. It refers to schools identified as one of the lowest performers in the state and subject to dramatic interventions, including potential leadership changes. States must identify at least 5% of their schools as priority schools. Mm -hmm. So I am not a huge fan of state departments of education, You can say that louder. Yeah, I'm not a fan of state departments of education Mm -hmm. because they're often very removed from the boots on the ground problems of classroom education. They're full of people who have graduated from being teachers to being administrators to being state administrators because they... I don't know. I'm very cynical about the pathway to something like the Ohio Department of Education from classroom teaching because in my experience... I see teachers who are not great teachers moved into admin positions because people want them out of the classroom. Either teachers want them out out of the classroom, their peers, or parents want them out of the classroom, or everybody just realizes that they shouldn't be in the classroom. So it's like, what do we do with them? Oh, yeah, we make them a leader. We put them in charge, which is completely nonsensical. But anyway, people graduate from things like district leadership roles to state leadership roles. So it's an even more intense focusing of the problem. Now, of course, this is not 100% the case they're obviously Mm going to be great leaders in any you know given right 
profession or whatever. But anyway, it's the people in my mind who maybe were not so successful at understanding classroom teaching who become the administrators of classroom mm -hmm. teaching at the state level. So we have the state identifying these 10% of schools as focus schools or 5% of schools as priority schools. And then these schools are required, they're required to use a certain percentage of Title I funding to address these achievement gaps for problematic subgroups of students, basically. Mm -hmm. So that's why you were talking about students with IEPs or 504s or whatever it is mm -hmm. they're required to have certain attention if they haven't if their numbers from one year to the next are below a certain percentage yeah. or whatever it looks like in a given example but basically the law just says you have to go find your lowest performing whatever Hold and essentially this. punish them <laughs> for being low performing mm -hmm. so that's kind of like the internal to each state department of education those are the requirements that we have at the national level. Um, <sighs> yeah, we also have international assessments that put us in a kind of precarious position among our peers. Um, PISA is one of these. I think that's how you pronounce it, but it's the Program for International Student Assessment. Mm. We participate in this, and it's a test administered to students in 79 countries around the world. <laughs> I talk about it. I'm going to skip down and talk about it a little bit later, but it's another even more meta approach to student assessment that puts us in rankings with okay. peer developed nations so gotcha anyway you wanted you drill down a little so, bit here and talk about testing yeah. in our state yeah. yeah so there are i didn't include all of them but obviously there's like a kindergarten assessment there's a pre-k leading into it kindergarten assessment so like there are assessments all the way through but this is sort of like the meat and potatoes of the data as far as grades three through eight are concerned so grades three through eight, they'll have an ELA test every English, year. English language arts. Yeah. And a math test every year. Mm -hmm. And then they'll have science in fifth grade and they'll have science in eighth grade. Interesting. So why do you think math and English are required every year, but science isn't? I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah. I don't. I wish I did. I'm not. Maybe. It's just curious to me that somebody has decided that. I mean, there's probably some actually informed reason for it, but apparently, you yeah, know, English and well, language. I mean, I, I guess understand I English. Um, language and mathematics are apparently key indicators of something. If that's the thing that we care about tracking, I'm gonna guess there's money involved somewhere, but oh, I'm yeah, not sure. <laughs> and then, so those are grades three through eight. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then what has happened, and this has happened since I've started teaching, so in the last eight years, there's been a shift of graduation requirements. You and I, when we were in high school, we were the first group to ever take the OGT, the Ohio Graduation Test. Uh-huh. I remember that. We graduated in 2008. Yep. So we were the first group to ever use the OGT as our standard for graduation requirements as far as needing to pass a test, to, you know what I mean, to graduate. Mm-hmm. That test, I should say. There was others before, obviously, but that specific test. So OGT was still the test that students were taking when I got my job in 2013. And actually, we used it my first couple of years. So we were still using OGT. And then we switched over to now what is called the end of course exam. So EOCs, as we call them. And so now Ohio uses end of course exams as their graduation requirements. And so the way that we do this now is that students have to earn 18 points from these tests to graduate. Okay. You can score one through five on every test. You can retake them, do all that. But there's algebra one and geometry or integrated math one and two. There's biology or physical science, but that was only for the class of 2018. 
There's American history and American government, and there was English one and English two, except for this year, English one has been murdered and gotten rid of. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So now because English, of COVID, is that the deal? Um, not only that, but because I guess I shouldn't say that. I think it was already on the chopping block pre-COVID. I think COVID was a good reason to kill it for sure. Mm, interesting. But I also think that the English tests are, are very. We this could be a whole episode, but we could we could do it. These English tests are very difficult. They are tested at a reading level that's not even consistent with where most of them would be at that age. Mm-hmm. So it's a really hard test. They're also very, very long tests. It's like 135 minutes per section, and there's two sections. It's huge. I mean, these tests are monsters. Okay, so, that doesn't even... Yeah, the fact that we tie up so much yeah. data into tests that aren't even really designed... Mm-hmm. Like, you're not... Our brains that are that young are not designed to to sit for that long to focus for Mm-mm. that long on anything literally let alone the, a high literally stakes any, test any video that i'm supposed to use is supposed to be as minutes long as they are years old so you're required to follow these recommendations yes. basically about attention and time management mm-hmm. but except yet, for this test but yet we test them yeah. in a very again these are graduation requirements so very high stakes testing in a manner that is not consistent with mm-hmm. the way that their minds are intended right. to process at that age. Yeah. That's kind of wild. So I'm going to, like I said, I can't say for certain why English 1 was eliminated. Uh-huh. I think uh-huh. there was a bunch of things. But I think fewer tests, not a bad idea. So I don't hate that. Sure. Am I excited to be a 10th grade teacher? No, but here we are. So this data, though, these end of course exams, this is... As far as, like, my data goes, this is it, right? If I was to teach juniors, it'd be ACT, right? Like, so ACT is a required test now as well. Like, schools pay for each student to take the ACT once. That's a different sort of standardized test, but it is something that happens. Mm -hmm. So for me, this is, you know, my data, quote unquote. And I want to mention this. Teachers don't want to teach to the test, but in some respects, we have to be mindful of what the test asks. You know what I mean? I think when I was teaching for the OGT and I was early in my career, I was doing a lot more of just practice OGTs and things like that because the OGT was known for recycling and they might even see these again, like that type of thing. I've definitely strayed from that because I realized I was just teaching the OGT. I wasn't really teaching anything with it. Mm -hmm. So now I work it in in other ways. And so like Membean, which I've talked about before, is one of the ways that another coworker and I have really helped. um, And I I have data that proves that Membean has helped Mm -hmm. our test scores because it's closing the gap of like Lexile and things like that of words that students don't know. Mm -hmm. And if we are able to reinforce students' vocabulary before they take a test that's already going to be a difficult read for them then we've at least filled a few of the gaps along the way you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like we've at least made text more available to them and it's really hard to do that like especially with a 16 year old um so like we have data that actually proves that that works so way to go Membean. please sponsor us um (laughs) but then like also this test like i'm talking about the english 2 test for 10th graders they love to do select all that apply correct answers and they might have like seven options mm-hmm. kids are not we, we were not raised to take tests like that i mean you were probably a little bit more well-versed because of ap testing but that is not a common test form growing up for many students mm-hmm. 
to be given seven answers and that six of them can be true. Like that's a very hard line of thinking and it's a very complicated testing process. So I have started working those into more of my tests and my assessments as a way to start breaking them into being like, okay, what is most right? And so that has helped. I have this later on in the notes, but I'm going to skip down to it because this is kind of the conversation that inspired this episode. We were talking about, you were talking about, and of course, scores by standard broken down by standard my dream um didn't know it (laughs) yeah so it was a magic google form that i didn't know existed right (laughs) but along those lines we were talking about like that question example that you just talked about how you can have a question with seven options and six of them are what you have to select in these high stakes testing environments educators can sometimes see what you're talking about so like achievement per standard or whatever Mm -hmm. but what you don't know and what the testing companies will not let you know is what the questions are what the questions are and how like what they are missing and why so legally we can't know so so that's wild to me though because that's saying legally you cannot understand why your students are not achieving at the level that you Mm -hmm. want them to if they're not achieving you know because there there are about a hundred different reasons you could get a question wrong right because you might at miss, least you might miss one of the four like four or five multiple yeah. choice options you needed to select and then you get the question wrong or maybe they give you partial credit or maybe they don't but regardless you're not going to know how the answer ended up in a you know non-passing score for that question or right. whatever so you're essentially being asked to align your entire curriculum for the year with these high stakes tests that you can't even then turn around and get mm-hmm. super useful data out of all it does is say to the state oh you need to take away their funding or oh you need to give them more funding and it's just like okay but if we're actually doing all of this to help students understand things better shouldn't we give teachers the most data we possibly can mm-hmm. about what students are and aren't doing correctly because they might get a question wrong because they don't understand a word used in the question yeah. not because they don't understand the concept being tested right yeah. or maybe the question is phrased actually badly like maybe the test is are. not designed well which can happen there are whole mechanisms in place in states designed around test review and stuff like that so people can have eyes on test questions to make sure that students of all stripes can understand them before they are tested on them so there's a whole industry around trying to make sure that test questions are designed well but that doesn't mean that they always are going to be designed well the final product Mm -hmm. so anyway i think that i think that that's one of the things that bothers me about certain kinds of educational data is that we hang so much on the success or failure of students on certain kinds of these exams and yet you're not even allowed to know how to address the problem if there is a problem what Mm -hmm. the problem is you're not allowed to know that most important part that comes from that kind of educational data that's kind of wild to me that that's the situation that we're in we're in this we have this glut of test stuff happening at any given point in the year for most students but the usefulness of them is more or less gated off for a a good portion of teachers Mm -hmm. so anyway that's my soapbox about this kind of stuff so enjoy yeah please that's mine as well yeah trust me what does all of this data that we have say about the state of the American educational system? Next question. <laughs> Everything is awful. No, you don't want to address that? No, I really don't. I mean, 
I think it tells us that our priorities are in the wrong place, mostly, like in the most general of ways. Does that make sense? Like, I don't think that teachers should have to spend as much time as they do doing these types of things if they know what they're doing. You and I mean, like, that's what's hard. Yeah. I don't think that kids should be tested this often. I had horrible test anxiety. I would still have test anxiety. Test anxiety and test burnout are both really real. They're they're real. And so, like, in high school, when we get to these end-of-course exams, we're talking, like, two weeks of tests. And it's just, like... That's no fun. Yeah. And so, I mean, you're not obviously going to be tested every day, but for some groups you are. Mm -hmm. And like it's, I mean, when we took the OGTs, it was five days of tests. You know what I mean? Like it was a whole week of every con, you know, like content wise. So I think that's really hard. And I can tell you firsthand that I've seen kids do really, really well on this test and get an A and then the next test they get a C. And yeah. come back and they, and so what was the difference? I maybe they didn't get it. Maybe they had a bad day. Maybe uh-huh. someone died. Like, there's literally so many factors and variables of these things. Yeah. That it's just so unfair. I'm kind of interested to see whether big data and machine learning is going to break into this industry in a way that I, I I would hope. If I'm being super optimistic about it, I would hope that the innovations in that realm can take a lot of pressure off of educators and even students Mm -hmm. it would be nice to be able to just say hey here's my grade book for the entire year i submit it to a machine learning algorithm that tells me where strengths and weaknesses are you know without having to spend two weeks invested i don't even think i need a machine to tell me that i can look at my kids grades when i put them in and tell you what that didn't didn't do for me sure sure but i'm thinking about even just saving you more time honestly mm. saving educators time. i know but teachers are going to do that every time they put a grade in the grade book because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. i'm going to look at it and be like "Ooh, this isn't consistent or mm-hmm. oh they did really well on this or why isn't this turned in like that data happens it just doesn't have i don't know well i, I mean, think i think yes i do agree with you that teachers are always doing that work i think that the possibilities that open up with machine learning big data type stuff is like more kind of global pattern level but also it helps you see things that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise have been looking for because patterns can emerge that you're not always you're, you're just not always aware that what you you might discover that there's this really useful or effective strategy or something and you're not necessarily looking for that when you're looking at your own data you're looking at maybe where problems are or whatever mm-hmm. you know just all kinds of there's just all kinds of things that i think open up with that kind of technology that can help teachers spend less time crunching numbers and more time processing what they learn about their own student achievement and turning it into something mm-hmm. you know beneficial okay. but that that would be what i would hope is that we can like I'm, I'm really honestly just hoping we can move away from this giant industry that has gazillions of dollars tied up in it around high stakes standardized testing in this country at least sure. and move toward a more productive use of educational data I did want to circle back to this PISA stuff, the international testing. This kind of has to do with what we were talking about before, but like at the time of, I found this is kind of a little bit dated article again. Um, it's from 2013 Atlantic article, but at that time, uh, the U S ranked fifth in spending per student among its PISA peer countries. Only Australia, Luxembourg, Norway, and Switzerland spent more per student at that point. The Slovak Republic, which scored similarly to the U.S., spent, spends $53,000 per student at this time. The U.S. spends $115,000 per student. 
probably for their entire educational journey through public school, I would guess. And then this same report says that higher expenditure on education is not highly predictive of better mathematics scores in PISA, for example. So anyway, long story short, what all of this data says is that you can spend as much money as you want per student, and but that is not an indicator of how well your country is going to do on these international standardized tests. And there is one thing that is a good indicator of how well students are going to perform on these standardized international tests, and that's the socioeconomic situation that the students' parents find themselves in. Mm-hmm. Socioeconomically, Which has nothing to do with a student. Yeah. <laughs> socioeconomically disadvantaged students across these countries are almost three times more likely than advantaged students not to attain the baseline level of proficiency in science. Paisa reported this was in a 2018 paper. Though the U.S. is by, by most measure, measures a wealthy country, it's one with many poor people. A 2017 UNICEF report looked at the relative child poverty rate of 41 well-off nations as a measure of income inequality, obviously. In this case, uh, defined as the percent of children living in a household with an income of less than 60% of the median for that nation. The U.S. ranked seventh from the bottom. 2013 study by Stanford University researchers found that the U.S. would rank much higher on the PISA test if it weren't for its higher levels of socioeconomic inequality, which is wild. (laughs) I would say, like, a good portion of my grad school experience was spent reading literature around achievement gaps. And at that time, when I was in grad school, this was in 2013, in this country, the achievement gap between black students and white students had closed measurably in recent years, but the achievement gap between rich and poor students had continued to mm-hmm. widen. You can take that and run with it in any direction that you want, but Busy. it suggests a whole lot of things about what's going on in our educational system and how what's happening in the classroom has a lot more to do with what's behind the classroom. So that's when all this data you know, you're talking about like free and reduced lunch programming stuff. All of that data becomes super relevant to achievement numbers in ways that classroom teachers can't control in any way. So we have <laughs> this wealth of data. We almost have more data than we know what to do with. I was going to say, yeah. But we, what can you do drowning. with it? <laughs> yeah, drowning in data, but nowhere to, nowhere to take it. Mm-mm. Because the problems ultimately lie outside of the educational system. Yeah. Well, and like my next point actually in our notes was that it can be super helpful, right? Like data can be helpful, but it's mm-hmm. also super overwhelming. Yep. And I said even good data is key. And in my experience, there's a lot of it that you don't need. Now, some of it's useful, but only when you really need it. Yeah. Most of it isn't. There's a big signal to noise yeah. problem, I would think, with educational data. And then you asked the question, you put this on here and I kind of started, I had like a a tick or a trigger because this is literally a question I have to answer every single time I have to do a pre-conference evaluation. Chelsea really did write, what are the expectations of educators when it comes to using data to inform classroom practices? Ugh. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's mostly what I'm, I'm mostly mad that you're someone who would just wonder that. Well, it's mostly and like want to ask me that. <laughs> like, no, I don't like that about you. It, it, no, it's like it's not even me being like, oh, it is. Excuse me. How is data informing your classroom practice? What I'm asking is how does like, for example, your administration come to you and say, like, what are their demands on you is what I want to know. We, we literally have to answer that question when we have an evaluation. Your question is, how do you use data to inform your classroom practice? Would you like me to bring up my ETPES and read it to you verbatim? Because it. It's very close to that if it's not literally that. I don't think you need to do that, but... 
Like, I'm mad at you. I told you. I know you're mad oh, at me. No. Mm, pre-conference. One of the questions is, what assessment data was examined to inform this lesson planning? Oof. Uh-huh. Another one was, how will you use assessment data to inform your next steps? Mm-hmm. Um, what does pre-assessment data indicate about student learning needs? So long story short yeah, is that you're one of asked. Our, one of our, like we have to fill out a self-assessment summary tool every single year. And one of our, like we have to mark analysis of data to monitor student pro- progress in the plan, differentiate and modify instruction as either a strength, an area of strength or growth. And we have to choose that every single year based mm-hmm. on how we've used it, what our plans are for it. And do we have proof to suggest that it is an area of growth or a strength or whatever. Mm-hmm. So like, Quite literally, every single time I log on to ETPES, I have to answer. I don't know this what is ETPES. That's the the website that hosts our evaluation system for okay. the state of Ohio. Gotcha, gotcha. So, like, you do you know why I'm mad at you for that question? No, are we on the same page? Oh, uh, good. It really wasn't about. I wasn't directly <laughs> trying to ask you. No, I the just, questions that yeah, you were asked all the time. Questions generally like this make me mad because they, and this is not the year of the week to ask me this, but they make me feel like teachers aren't intentional like mm-hmm. this type of question makes it seem like i just walk into the room and gotcha. pick up a book right and i'm like you know what i really want to teach you about the holocaust i have no support for why this is important mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it feels questions like this feel like a slap in the face to most of us because we're like yes we have data yes we know like and one of my points was that for me data is something like I'm grading a test and 80% of my kids missed the same question. Uh-huh. What about that question did it? Was it poorly worded? Right. Did I not have an actual correct answer that was actually, you know, like sufficient? Did I forget to teach it? Mm-hmm. Did they all fall asleep? <laughs> was it somewhere weird on the test where they didn't answer it? Right. There's so many points of that that literally when I get there, I'm like, okay, well, that doesn't count towards anyone because I didn't, me, didn't do it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So we're using data. We have too much data to not use it. Yeah, I wasn't really asking you if you use data, just to be clear. I was asking you what your district expects of you. Well, if we want to score in a way that makes us want, you know, want to keep my job. That's what I wanted. I've got to. Yeah. I've got to tell them I know what to do with my data. No, that's more kind of what I was asking you is to tell to talk about the role Mm. that the very high stakes role that data plays in the the professional life of yeah. educators because well, it's not just like if you like, don't score well enough or high enough or whatever based on your data from your test scores your data from your student learning objective if you did an slo that year and your data from your evaluation you can be put onto what's called an improvement plan by the state yeah and so that's another place then that you have to prove your data. Yeah. Here, here's the thing about all of this that really bothers me. In the business world, most employees are expected to go through performance reviews every so often. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has to do with, okay, how well are you performing at sure. your job? But in the business world, employees, for the most part, I mean, managers maybe, but like most people are not evaluated on the performance of everybody else around them for their performance review, right? So your performance review as a teacher requires an uh, basically an aggregate of the performance of all of the students that you are teaching Mm -hmm. so this which again like you mentioned could waver for any number of reasons like kids are going through something kids had a bad day kids like overslept and felt disgruntled or there was a death in the family or like 
any of that, your professional life hinges on mm. all of that. And that's, you know. Well, and I'm also talking about this from a place of privilege mm. as far as what I teach. My, one of my coworkers, who's the best teacher I've ever seen in my entire life, will probably always almost be on an improvement plan if they are on one because of the students that they teach. Yeah. Because of the achievement scores of their students. Mm-hmm. And they're seriously, I mean, there just isn't anyone who does it better. Mm-hmm. And so I look at them and they teach circles around me and I have, you know, better quote unquote data, but it's just because of my student population. Yeah. I have motive, mostly motivated learners, like things like that. I've got most of my students have someone at home who cares that they showed up to school right. that day. You're not working to get them to a baseline of even vaguely caring no. day in and day out. But so there like, are educators who work in populations whose <laughs> entire job is more like, how do I get this kid to care at all? I have to get them here, this, right? right? I have to make right. them know that this matters. Yeah. So like, that's the other thing that doesn't come into play in this data conversation as it should as far as, you know, this question of what are the expectations of educators when it comes to using data to inform classroom practices. Mm-hmm. We're all going to say we're using it to inform our classroom practices, but that doesn't give us all the same results. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for someone like me with the class load that I teach, I'm probably not going to be on an improvement plan based on my data. Mm-hmm. And I'm not nearly as good of a teacher as this teacher is. So it's like a combination of what you do in the classroom, but also complete luck of the draw in terms yeah, of your student population. Your course load is completely, mm-hmm. I mean... Mm-hmm. I mean, in the high school that I teach in, we have three different tracks of English. Well, four, really, with small group. Yep. But three. Yep. So if you're teaching the honors or the higher level ones, you're always suggestively... I don't know. It's hard. Anyways. Yep. Woof. Woof. All right. I feel like I'm being evaluated. Yeah. No, I know. I put you in the hot seat. You did. No, I'm very sorry. No, it's okay. But I think, like, I think these conversations are important because I... So many times someone on Facebook or some parent that calls me be like, why aren't you teaching this? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you don't have time for all the reasons why I'm teaching this. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't even tell you on the spot what all we're going to do with it. Um, and students will get smart, too. Well, I don't need to know this. And I'm like, oh, you don't need this, this and this. And I can name off standards. Like, so I think people who aren't familiar with educators, especially, mm-hmm. uh, probably have no idea what that's like and i have to t- remind myself of that a lot because i grew up with a teacher so i know what it was like for him mm-hmm. um you knew what it was like because you've been around teachers your whole life you know what i mean like you've been surrounded by educators mm-hmm. um but that's not the case for everyone yeah. you know yeah so yeah anyways <laughs> you ready to move on i'm just ready to put this behind no, you no 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 it's not at you i mean it's a valuable question i think but when you're asked it seven eight times every single year on this form it's a little bit you know yeah that would be overwhelming because i want to be like well what do i teach that's my data <laughs> yeah so anyways. yeah okay i mean one last thing yeah. i was not excited about covid but i was excited about covid because i had no data my test didn't happen. Do you know what that feels like? To go into a new school year and not have to be stressing when that drops. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like my first year of teaching all over again. Mm-hmm. Great feeling. Yeah. Shouldn't be that way, but it is. Yep. Anyways. Anyway. <laughs> We're going to move on to fill in the blank. Is there anything of the data, the stuff that you didn't feel we covered? Oh, no. I mean, I I, I pretty comfortably got on my soapbox and okay. got off of it. So you I, feel good about your, your statements? Yeah, I just think that... I think that 
I'm the sort of person who would say that we need, uh, and again, we keep focusing on standardized testing because that's where all of the conversations around data happen. But I think all of this could be put to great use. There are just so many things that we could learn from just the sheer data available out there. Like there's so mm -hmm. many things that we could learn, but I think our priorities are all jumbled and wrong basically mm -hmm. yeah. i don't think that we're using data in a way that empowers teachers i don't think it it empowers students i don't think that the ways so data and data gathering and data collection none of that is inherently bad or wrong even standardized testing is i, I don't think is inherently bad or wrong but i think what we've seen is a very misplaced focus on the importance of standardized tests for X, Y, and Z. I think we have decided to tie funding to achievement data that in turn is not actually based on classroom learning, but like I said, socioeconomic sure. status. So we're tying a funding model in terms of public education to something and we're saying the root cause is this, but it's actually this thing that is entirely outside of the control of the school district. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we, as a nation, need to kind of reset on our priorities and judgments around what we do with the data that we collect. So yeah. that's kind of my, my takeaway. Go for it. Yep. Ready to move on? Yeah. Fill in the blank? Yeah, I'll do it. Last episode's question. Yes. Okay, last episode's question was, this black singer, songwriter, and entrepreneur was known as the king of soul, with his most popular songs being Cupid, A Change Is Gonna Come, and Chain Gang. Recently, Leslie Odom portrayed this important musician in the Amazon movie One Night in Miami. So who was that smooth singer? It was Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke. What a voice. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. So good. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do this week's? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So this episode's question, this would have been the week to be in New Orleans. It would have been, had it not been for the global pandemic. <laughs> as Mardi Gras celebrations, Mardi Gras is today when we're recording this Tuesday as Mardi Gras, uh, celebrations popped up all over the city, even during the pandemic. One of the most celebrated parades is in honor of this king, the king of the carnival. What is his name? Mm -hmm. The king of carnival. Mm -hmm. Someday that'll be on my list. Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras. Yeah, I would like to do that too. That's That would be a good one. I hope I do it before my liver gives out, which with the pandemic happening is going to be much sooner than later. Well, I think that's where your liver gives out, right? <laughs> Doesn't it happen at Mardi Gras? Uh, anyway, what did you learn? What did I tell you I learned? Tomatoes. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I. That's it. I learned tomatoes. <laughs> this week, I learned that tomatoes are a new world fruit, and I'm pretty sure that I actually knew that, but... So, so we're watching this thing, and you're, you're going to talk about this too, but we're watching this show where Stanley Tucci just romps around Italy and makes me incredibly romps. jealous. I don't think yeah, Stanley he just, would say he's romping. He romps. I'm here for it. Stanley Tucci romps in his own sassy little highly manicured way. It's a highly manicured romp. But he uh, he just visits. He's in, doing this show that we started watching, and he's kind of touring Italy italy's cuisine but anyway it feels a little anthony bourdain to me yeah it's kind of that same i love that. vibe where it reminds me of that zach efron show that we yeah. watched too, we talked about just that like, here too yeah we talked about that on podcast but it's just like you know it i love apparently i love watching these shows where like beautiful people go all over the world and eat delicious freaking food so that's mm -hmm. where i am but uh yeah and like anthony bourdain and zach efron and stanley tucci are all a different kind of beautiful 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, there's no one kind of beautiful. No, they're all and beautiful, they're all three though. doing it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what I learned for, for real, but that I think I already knew, but had suppressed, was that tomatoes are a New World fruit. So, the, uh, Stanley Tucci was talking about the influence of the Medici's in Florence. He was in Florence for this particular episode, looking at some of their cuisine, and he's just saying tomatoes were essentially imported from like central american countries starting around the 1500s whenever the medicis were at the height of their power in mm-hmm. florence so tomatoes as we think of that as quintessential italian cuisine but italian cuisine goes it wasn't theirs much farther than that and it only started happening around 1500s uh when the tomato was imported to italy pre-tomato so. is basically just bread yeah lots of bread <laughs> lots of flavorless saltless bread carrots apparently. uh carrots celery yeah Mm-hmm. anyway I, that's kind of what i learned and i also learned by way of googling after the fact about that was that the united states we adopted tomatoes from europe and not from neighbors to the south so it got exported to europe from central american countries and then we imported it from tomatoes from europe instead of from the south of us which is Checks wild out. to me but peak america sense. yeah it's very very american way of handling something <laughs> we're gonna go so, twice sorry, removed we to have get to this filter thing. this through our european brethren um, we're gonna make it come through them first oh, they're gonna God. do the heavy lifting we're gonna take it from there so that's um that's one thing i learned <sighs> the other thing it's not so much a learning about as a as a shout out to a new thing that we're enjoying and that's this this video new video game cooperative survival game called valheim it's about it's a viking survival game so you're a viking and you're in the wilderness in in a like mystical realm that the gods have sent you to and you have to kind of prove your worth by surviving and fighting monsters in this mythical realm and we're having a oh at least i personally am having a, a heck load of fun playing i'm having it. fun i really like grindy survival and farming games so that's it's just so nice to just turn off my brain about everything else for a while and mm-hmm. play games like that but it's really beautiful there's like cute little clarinet jazzy music i don't know why that was the choice but that was the choice but it's just a very beautiful banking. game it's fun it takes forever to do everything so the pace is a little slow but i personally enjoy games with a slow pace because i if i like the you know the environment because it's just fun to just kind of sit there and not not think about anything and just do mm-hmm. the grind so yeah yeah those two things are my things what did what did um, you learn so i learned this is just really <laughs> peak ohio given our weather but franklin county which is the home of columbus mm-hmm. right they seem to have in my opinion more like winter weather warnings and advisories and things like that, even for the same amount of snow as we get and we're a surrounding, you know, area. So they have like more warnings and alerts as well. Yeah, you're so their threshold for snow and things like that is lower than these other areas, which like technically makes sense to me. Yeah. But I never understood how Franklin County would have like a winter weather warning and other counties around them who are getting the same weather wouldn't. And it's because the thresholds are different. So that was yeah, interesting. Yeah, that makes sense learn. because look, you know, a half inch of ice can screw up that's different in downtown a Columbus. densely populated yeah. city a lot differently oh than it does it but i just never you know it's never uh-huh. explained to me uh-huh. um, they don't have a lot of snow tires downtown downtown Columbus. no they don't <laughs> um we also don't really have great public transportation we other have than no public bus, transportation so, as yeah. far as I know. yeah the other thing more importantly while watching stanley tucci yes back it, to stanley tucci oh jeez Maybe we could just do an episode he, on Stanley Tucci. I would love to teach everyone about Stanley Tucci. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He was like, I'm going to go on a bar crawl. 
this is my dream a bar crawl in tuscany this was pre-covid filming by the way it so it's all safe don't worry um but they said there, that the beginning was, credits yeah he was going through tuscany he's walking up in these like you know old whatever tuscan streets these beautiful buildings and there are just little holes in the wall they look like and like there was intentional like yeah not like somebody punched they just look like like this little baby home in the side of a wall a tiny window yeah yeah and (laughs) home it's a home for my wine that's what i'm thinking (laughs) but he like went up and there was someone on the other side and they handed him a glass of wine through it Mm -hmm. and so there used to be like there aren't as many now obviously i'm sure there's even fewer now that there's covid i think he said there was only one functioning one in florence or something like that so what what happened what are these things though oh no he just it's like a little baby bar yeah and you walk up you used to be able to just walk up to all of these it was like a direct distribution there was no middleman no that's exactly what i need so the wine producers would just hand you your glass of Uh wine through this little tiny window he's standing there and the the woman that he's with is like not drinking hers as quickly as him and so he walks back up and his glass is empty and he sets it down and she looks at him and he's like well mine's empty so i guess i need to get another and then like out pops a hand with another glass of wine it's so cute that is someone with anxiety's dream to not have to order like yeah if i just went to that window and they knew i needed wine a vino blanco just hand it over a vino rosso anyways um that's very high on my travel list like maybe the top of my list I now text, i texted my sister about that last night after we watch it and I, she was like i want a wine window and i'm like so do i yeah we decided that we need to have houses next to each other and we can both have wine windows and then we could just serve each other wine out the wine windows mm, I don't back and forth serve forever it, though yeah i know but see the thing is if you want to receive you have to give too so that not in tuscany not in tuscany <laughs> you two can work that out i'm going to tuscany so you and I i'm gonna to live tuscany. on that corner and by just, the wine window yeah why don't you just set up a little tent under the wine window i don't want to take all the business oh i want okay. them to stay in business okay but i want the wine at my you know that's i good. want it available to me it's good. good so my post-covid dream it's just italy i think just italy it's just italy <laughs> and it's more specifically that one wine window just that one wine window in and, italy. and maybe stanley tucci i'll take it okay he can pop by anytime he wants yeah all right that's exceedingly italian to me yeah and that's how god intended yeah i want a wine window of my very own oh what a dream yeah i'm just gonna sit here in the snow and think about tuscany now <laughs> anything else no just you know do your part stay healthy yep get the vaccination when you can yep stay safe and uh take care of yourselves we'll see you soon we'll see you soon bye Thanks for supporting 16 to 1. We're trying to grow our audience, so please check us out at 16to1.com, all spelled out, and tell your friends about the show. On our website, you can find links to follow us on social media, an archive of all our old episodes, and a contact form where you can get in touch. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next show. So, when they named the Tyrannosaurus Rex, he's like the king king. King? King. King. King King King. Right? King King. First and last. King King. Tyrannosaurus Rex. You're not even kidding. He's just the King King. <laughs>
<laughs> you were kind of mocking me, but now you're with me. 